I was extremely anxious, especially an abdominal surgery because of what I went through um, with my wounds not healing properly and getting sepsis. I was terrified of having it opened again. That was one of the reasons that I really wanted a VBAC because of how scary the recovery was from my abdominal surgery. But I also knew that I wanted to be okay and that clinically they had never led me in the wrong direction and that they wouldn't be suggesting this now at 38 weeks when it had never been suggested before unless it was really important. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. The Jewish weekly day of rest, Shabbos, is so precious and sacred. However, many women find it challenging to refrain from applying makeup on this festive day, and some are even hesitant to leave the house. Enter Seventh Day Shine, a revolutionary skincare and makeup line that can be applied on Shabbos while keeping halacha. Their foundation, blush, bronzer, eyeshadow, and eyeliner and lip powders come in a huge array of colors, and their application brushes are so luxurious. My favorite product is Luminosity, an intensely hydrating and refreshingly scented serum that's especially formulated for permissible application on Chavez. Check out their full line on SeventhDayShine.com. That's the number 7, T-H-D. D-A-Y-S-H-I-N-E dot com and enter birthway10 for 10% off your purchase. Find the link in the episode show notes. It takes time and practice to master the skill of the newborn swaddle. So here's my hack. Go to elliesandco.com. Among their full line of gorgeous, high-quality baby bedding and lay assets, you will find adjustable swaddle blankets that take out all the guesswork. With a pocket for baby's legs and adjustable wings with secure closures, your baby's swaddle will be perfect every time. Go to elliesandco.com. That's E-L-Y-S-A-N-D-C-O.com and enter BW10 for 10% off your purchase. Link in the episode show notes. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. In this episode, we are going to be interviewing Esther Woodruff once again on part two of her fertility reproductive journey. So Esther, we covered your surgery and that you pretty much healed. You had more than one surgery and it, it was like a process, yeah. quite the process. So did you feel ready to get pregnant again? You knew that even despite having breast surgery and everything, you, you were still going to continue to build your family. Yes. Before having surgery, I had asked about that um, because again, I had extensive abdominal surgery for the reconstruction. And my plastic surgeon said, you need a full year to recover, to give your body the chance, the tissue to regenerate, and just like everything. Um, but, but even was, given all the abdominal surgery you had, it was still completely safe yes. for you to get pregnant, and that wouldn't interfere. No, not at all. Um, 
Yeah, and it was a year from the first surgery, not the second. So the second, the first surgery I had in June, the second surgery I had in January, actually like five or six weeks before the pandemic started. Um, and I remember thinking when the pandemic started, like, wow, I was just in the hospital um, and I still had open wounds and just like being really scared about things in general. But yes, we definitely knew that we wanted another child. Um, my daughter was turning four at the time, so a nice age gap. Um, this time we did not have the same doctors that we did when we were in New York, but again, we had Yale and Yale's fertility center is fabulous. And they know all of my surgeons again, because cancer patients go in for fertility treatments all the time to preserve fertility after issues. Um, so again, the continuity of care was there, um, felt very comfortable, but because of the pandemic fertility centers closed down. So it was really devastating for me. Um, we had like started everything. We were going towards this workup and um, I was really excited. And all of a sudden, you know, everything is taken away. And without a fertility clinic, I pregnancy is not possible for me. And um, in the same time, again, my husband being in the military, there, there was this possibility that he was going to be deployed for nine months. And I was just like, if he's not here, then we can't do fertility treatments. It's not going to work. Um, it was really crazy timing. Uh, the whole world was going through crazy time. Um, this is just one of and one of so many effects of COVID, where people had to put their fertility plans on hold. On hold yeah, and and we didn't know when, like when they were going to reopen. They didn't know when. Around June, I'd say early summer. This past this, June. This past June. So about a year ago. Yeah, 2020. 2020 um, I got the call that they were reopening. Thank God my husband did not get deployed. Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> um, so we started fertility treatments and elated that it worked on the very first time. And my HCG, so for people who don't, for people who get pregnant naturally um, and they don't have to worry about these things, they probably don't know about HCG trends or repeat betas or anything like that. But with fertility treatments, typically they, they track your HCG over the course of 48 hours and the typical trend is a 50% rise over 48 hours. That's what we're looking for. So HCG is the hormone that sustains pregnancy. Yes. It's the main hormone. So they do very accurate, very specific and thorough testing of different hormones when you're having mm -hmm. fertility treatment. So this is one of like the key And this is the hormones. first sign that there's a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, so of course I couldn't like resist. I took a home pregnancy test and got a positive. So I knew I was pregnant, but <laughs> but then starts the, is the HCG going to be right? And Baruch Hashem, the HCG did rise appropriately. It was actually extremely high um, steadily. So uh, we were really excited. Everything was great. Um, I actually went in to the doctor for, again, with fertility treatments, you're seen a lot earlier than, than you otherwise would be. So at five weeks, I went in for my first sano, and thank God there was a sac. No baby or fetal pull yet, but it's still too early. That's all we're looking for is a sac. At that point, they stopped testing your HCG because it's irrelevant, and it sort of, it, it like tapers off at a certain point. Um, it stops doubling. So I was being monitored um, and I would say like a week later I started bleeding and freaking out because again, I have, I have a lot of experience with loss. Even though there are many reasons that people bleed for good reasons, when you've had miscarriages, you immediately think the worst. My doctor had me come in immediately um, and there were actually two sacs. So we found out mm. that there were twins. 
Um, unfortunately, the sack that was scanned the week before had stopped growing, but the second sack still looked viable. So I was sent to Yale's maternal fetal medicine because their Sano machines are much more in depth just to get a, a good read on what's going on with that second sack. So we like started Friday finding out that we were pregnant. By the following Friday, it was, oh, you're pregnant, you're having twins. One of them's not viable. And then the following, by the end of the week when I had the second sauna, we found out that the second one wasn't viable either. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a miscarriage and it was really devastating again. All of them are. But this one was especially hard for me because it was my first miscarriage since having sorrow where I was actively pursuing fertility treatments and desperately. Um, I really, I'd wanted another child for several years already, but because I had to recover from my surgery, everything had to go in the back burner. It was like that circumstantial fertility we talk about where, you know, maybe biologically you could have had fertility treatments, but because of the circumstances of your other surgeries. I couldn't, right. So it was really difficult. And again, because we were still, you know, things were lessening pandemic wise, but we're still very much in the pandemic. I had to go to all these appointments alone. Um, with my husband on FaceTime um, or over the phone and then come home to my daughters who I love very, very much. But like there was no personal space to mourn that loss at all. And now because I had just turned 30, I'm getting closer to needing these um, gynecological surgeries that would make it impossible to have children. So there's this fear of, am I going to ever get a second chance at a third child? So... Um, again, we waited for the HCG to fall down to zero. Um, and when it finally did, I met with my doctor again. And after like failed cycles, and this is still considered a failed cycle because of the miscarriage, you sort of have the like, what happened appointment? Like what went wrong? And a lot of times there's nothing to say what went wrong. We don't know. Um, especially when I was on all the supportive medication that I should have been taking. Um, but he said, you know what, let's let's try again. You know, you do have this window of time, but you're still young, you're still healthy. Let's let's jump right back into this. So we did. Um, we waited one cycle in between and then started again. Uh, and thank God we got pregnant with Sev. And actually, it's really funny timing wise, because if you remember last summer, we had that power outage here. I don't know if Blue Ridge did. Uh, we lost power not, for a week. Not just did we have that. My husband had emergency surgery. Oh, right. At the same time. That's I will right. never forget that power right. outage because it just complicated things that much more. Exactly. So, yeah, we had a power outage for about a week. It was, it was not, horrible. Yeah, a lot of places had it. I know Passaic had it. I know Riverdale had it. And it was just bad. And there were no hotels a, to go to. And we couldn't leave because... With the pandemic, my husband was on travel restriction. The military was super strict about where you could go or not go. So, like, I couldn't even... And it, it applied to family members as well. We couldn't leave the state legally. Um, it was horrible. But the Sunday of that power outage, it, it was about eight days past um, the treatment. And I took the first home pregnancy test, and it was a faint positive. And I remember, again, this, like, dichotomy of, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God but also so scared because I was still very much um, suffering emotionally from the loss. But went to the doctor, did the repeat betas, everything was fine. But again, my my betas were fine with my last miscarriage before. Um, so there was no comfort. There was no finding that comfort. It's like a, a glimmer of hope with a lot of trepidation. Absolutely. I would like to say like cautiously optimistic. Um, and didn't want to tell anyone, like not even our family, because they had just like they knew about the one before, and I didn't want anyone worrying about me. I, 
it just was a lot. Yeah, it's probably also hard to like disappoint people all over again. It's not just you, and right. it, that's you have enough to deal with. You have enough emotional yeah. baggage to deal with, and then just having to call other people and disappoint them and tell them too. And yeah, right. It's a lot. It's a lot. So we didn't say anything, um, and time slowly trickles on. It is the longest. I would say. I remember you were telling me, and it was slow for me. I was davening <laughs> and and like hoping for you that it would take and oh my gosh yeah definitely um so we had the first sano and the sack was there again um and at this appointment actually even at five and a half weeks there was also a fetal pole which is the first sign that a baby is developing so that was amazing it's more than what they wanted to see they're really happy went back a week later and heard the heartbeat and saw the flicker for the first time um wow and you didn't hear the heartbeat with the last loss right no and statistically the loss after a heartbeat it drops significantly it's still there but it drops significantly before there's a heartbeat that's considered a chemical pregnancy yes. where it, it's not really a clinical pregnancy yet but right. once you hear the heartbeat that's already a clinical pregnancy yes it's like the, and, the first sign of life but, yeah um, and so statistically the chances of loss are much lower yes so that was incredible um and actually at that point in time, because of everything that I had gone through, um, Yale was allowing certain spouses to come in. Um, and they would basically make your appointment when no one else was in the building. Um, and my husband was able to come into not the first one, but the second appointment, because again, things are lessening, they're allowing in more people. Um, so he was able to come in and that was a huge, relief for me because you know my previous experience was finding out all by myself that it's you're traumatic. having this yeah it, it was hard it was really hard so basically you stay with the fertility clinic until about 10 to 12 weeks depending and then you graduate and get to go on to whoever's going to deliver you because I have such a history of loss and complicated pregnancies um, I was monitored by a high-risk practice at Yale um, their maternal fetal medicine department um, Which is such an amazing team, I have to say. Oh, amazing. Yale is one of a handful of hospitals in the U.S. that has a dedicated, like, 16-bed, I believe, high-risk um, maternal special care unit. It's just, like, amazing the things that I've seen when I work there. Um, so, yeah, again, you had great messengers and you were in such great hands. Like I said, Hashem really puts you where exactly where you need to be. Um incredible incredible doctors and really feeling every step of the way that like they were they were in it too they wanted me to have this baby as much as I wanted to have this baby um and I developed HG again <laughs> which which we knew it's they say that it's genetic that most people who have it with one pregnancy have it with all pregnancies um, but everything was really great. Otherwise, we were hitting every single milestone exactly as we should. He was measuring perfectly. When did you start telling people? I don't think I ever officially told people because I was still so scared. I was so scared. And my husband's a clinical psychologist, so he deals with like emotional wrecks on the regular. And I used to cry to him every night. And literally, I'm not exaggerating. Every single night, I would have a moment where I would just cry and say, what if I never get to hold him? Um, and that was a very, very real feel through the day that he was born. And that's so special. You knew he was a boy, right? We did after, find out. After two girls. After two girls, beautiful. we found out that he was a boy. Um, and it was. I mean, we ended up telling our daughters. 
I would say around 17 weeks. I Because I was so sick, my older daughter, the eight-year-old, she like was convinced I had corona and was dying. Um, and she expressed this to my husband that she was really worried about how sick I was. And my husband said to me, like, I know you don't want to tell anyone because if you talk about it, it makes it real. And once something is super real, that means that that loss that you experience, if there is one, is real on a whole other multitude of levels. It's not just your loss anymore. And some people find comfort in that, and that's fine. Um, again, all of this is so highly personalized. I personally... But I can imagine, on the other hand, it could be very emotionally burdensome. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people don't know what to say, and they don't know what to do, and then it's just awkward. Um, so we told our daughters, and my eight-year-old immediately started crying and she said Hashem answered my tefillos and my immediate reaction was like oh my gosh my daughter is so cute and like she's so from um but she then she expressed being eight years old she's able to express these things that she has been davening for a very long time um and that she was just so happy and my five-year-old was like she had given up all hope because by kindergarten almost every other kid in her class had a baby if not two more below them so she just was like hey okay like she didn't think much about it um but so I think also it must have been so special this time around I remember with my kids when I had like my third and my fourth they were older so they can understand better like Sarah absolutely. was probably like, too that. young to really oh, understand yeah, she was two, everything she was with, two Perry. with Perry she was when she when Perry was born, Zara was turning three. She was a baby still. So it's a whole new experience, that excitement. Totally. At a seven-year-old and an almost five-year-old. Um, very. And Zara was very, like, what do you need, mommy? How can I help you feel better? Perry would bring me a trash can. You know, whatever. They were both and very excited. that took away their worry. It did. It did. They wanted to tell the world. Um, and I had to explain to them. I said, you know, the same way that we dive in for a baby. Other people may be diving for a baby too. So we're not going to talk about it because you know we don't want to make anyone feel bad, um, which is the truth. I never want to make anyone feel bad. And, and I had friends that were suffering from infertility at the same time and there is this, this guilt. But at this again, it's a weird place to be in because at the same time, I'm terrified that I'm never going to meet my baby. So it's not all ecstasy anymore. It's not. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked about this with Amy Barron. She's a incredible. Few, a few episodes back yeah. about how pregnancy after infertility is really not. It messes with you. Mm-hmm. It's really not. It's not. Um, so we told our kids. Um, and then around 20 weeks, I went in for my anatomy scan. And because I'd had preterm labor with Perry, they did a routine measuring of the cervix. Um, and my cervix measured short. And Which means you're at much greater risk for, for preterm labor again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so significantly short that they were going back and forth if they should do a cerclage or not. And a cerclage is like a, a stitch, stitch to sew up the that's placed in your cervix that um, will hopefully decrease the chances of preterm labor. But you have so much of a window; it's a really small window of time you have to actually put do it in. It. Right? They won't do it after 23 weeks, um, and they were also nervous about like if and when you do it you run the risk of triggering labor because you're messing with the cervix so in the end they put me on um progesterone which also is shown clinically to stop labor we did not do the cerclage because that window sort of closed and they felt like 
from 20 weeks to 21 weeks, my cervix was stable, stable. and from 21 to 22, it, it measured a tiny bit smaller, but nothing major. Um, so so it, there's risks and benefits to, to anything. Yeah. So they were weighing the two and just taking whatever information they could to right. calculate what the decision would be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because I had done fertility treatments, um, progesterone is a normal part of that also. So they knew that I was capable of doing it correctly. Um, so we did that. Because they're shots, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you can do PIO, which is progesterone and oral, or you can do a suppository. Um, I ended up doing the suppositories because the progesterone and oil is really, really painful. <laughs> it's really a thick serum. It's not fun. So we did we did the suppositories twice a day, um, but I was told to go on to not full bed rest because there is information that full bed rest can also be a reason of preterm labor. So basically... A, beforehand I was a Mora and I was chasing after little kids and my doctor is just like you can't do that anymore you can't be on your feet all day decreased activity yeah and I I want to put it out there that with Perry you were told to be on bed rest and the more time passes the more information we get through mm-hmm. research so now we do know that it's um it is important to move around to an extent Absolutely. even for reasons like your blood is um at higher risk for clotting, clotting yeah circulatory exactly so we don't want you to stay still for too long because because that can actually cause a deep vein thrombosis, which is a blood clot that can go to your heart that can be really dangerous. So at this point, the recommendations changed and you were told to do partial bed rest. Right. I was told, you know, if you're in bed for a couple of hours and get out of bed, move around, go to the bathroom for sure. Like it's okay to go outside with your kids. Just don't be out of bed doing strenuous activity for hours at a time. Don't run marathons. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And I was, I was having some pretty strong Braxton Hicks that turned into some real contractions, but for the most part, it was it was pretty okay. Um, nothing. I wasn't dilated at all at that point. Um, so huge ups and downs once again. Besides for the HG, yeah, the partial bed rest, the the fear again that you're gonna um, have preterm labor. And I think that up until you get to like 28 weeks, somewhere between the 22 and 28 week mark is a really hard time. Very. I, mean, I was texting you a lot at this point. Um, I remember so specifically when we passed 28 weeks, saying like you breathe a little. Bit it because even if you were to deliver um the NICU stay is substantial but it's not it's not as fighting for life as if you you know deliver at 25 weeks the statistics of survival are much higher and the statistics of um, any like cognitive delays and developmental uh, deficits are lower at that point whereas somewhere between 22 and 28 weeks it's kind of like your baby can possibly survive, but then uh, live a life with a lot of difficulty and hardship and making really difficult decisions. So past 28 weeks is like good. And then every like two weeks is another milestone. Yeah, right? absolutely. That, that's exactly what it was. Went from 28 to 30 to 32 to 34. Um, And thank God time went on and kept passing. And each week I was like, I made it another week. I did start dilating around 32 one weeks um i think i was a full two centimeters um and continued to efface a little bit more so then you know we really thought this baby is coming sooner rather than later um and then it was pesach time and i was 36 weeks and about three centimeters and almost fully effaced so we thought for sure this baby's coming um and at that point they i'd been taking off the progesterone at 36 weeks because if baby comes that's totally fine um really again a lot of gratitude to god for keeping him inside of me as long as possible um 
And at that point, I was so ready for him to come. I was so ready. That Especially was, being told he's going to be here early. He's gonna it be felt here like early. he was so late. Yeah, if you're being told, you're statistically they they can. There's some formula that the measure of your cervix can predict when you're going to deliver. So where my cervix was measuring at 20 weeks, predicted that he would be delivered sometime between 30 and 34 weeks. So now we're at 36 going on to 37 weeks. And again, so little that we know. Right. Yeah. So I mean, and you feel, I felt amazing that, thank God I kept him in. My second child that I was told was going to be delivered early and didn't. Um, so now I was really ready for him to come out. And... Um, after Pesach, went to the doctor, um, just regular checks, and he's fine. And I thought they were going to say, yeah, we're ready to go. You've, you've dilated more. I was having so many contractions. The first, no, the second Seder, I thought for sure I had to go to the hospital. I was having contraction every seven minutes. Um, that were, They were getting harder and stronger. But I wanted to put my girls to sleep first. So I was like, after they go to sleep, then we're going to go to the hospital. And I sat down on my daughter's bed, and I ended up like sitting there a little longer than usual. And because I sat for so long, the contraction stopped. So we did not go to the hospital. And that, that was kind of like, I think, what the pattern in your whole entire pregnancy yeah. of like, okay, contractions are go. starting. Yeah. Now I need to rest. Okay, contractions yeah. stop. Will they stop? Okay, they stop. And yeah. just to clarify, because you had had a successful VBAC, um, the plan was... A VBAC. Another VBAC. And statistically, the rates of a successful VBAC go up once you've already They never proven. even mentioned C-section to me. Mm -hmm. It was never mentioned. Um, which I really liked because my experience with my VBAC was a lot better than my experience with my C-section. Um, obviously, one is... There are some people that say that they like their C-sections because they go into it knowing what to expect and what their recovery is. Um, for me personally, I recovered a lot faster from my VBAC than my C-section. It's it just night and day difference. Statistically, so, that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the plan was a VBAC. At this point, they had started doing non-stress tests once to twice a week just to make sure that he was okay. Non-stress test is when they basically just come in, they put you on for at least 20, 20 minutes, minutes, look at the baby's heart rate, different characteristics. If baby meets criteria, then we know that your baby's doing well. Right, exactly. Um, so it was a Monday morning? No, a Tuesday morning. It was a Tuesday morning. I'd gone in for my non-stress test, um, and he did great. He passed within like the first 20 minutes. But they decided they wanted to do a growth scan just to, because we're going for this VBAC. I had, again, intense um, abdominal surgery. Just want to make sure that everything's okay. And you had so much weight. You, did you lose weight? I lost a lot of weight. During yeah. the pregnancy, you weren't even eating, right? Yeah, yeah, I lost a lot of weight during this pregnancy that, like, I couldn't even imagine how the baby had anything because I had lost so much weight from being so sick. Um, and it's incredible because our bodies are still capable of providing nutrition well, for that babies. Well, a testament to that. Yeah. Exactly. So it's amazing how, how our bodies can work. Right. So at this point, I was 38 weeks and change. Um, and just because of my history with delivery, they decided that I was a good candidate for induction at 39 weeks. And it, they even said that it wasn't even going to be called like a real induction because I was already four to five centimeters dilated and 90% effaced. Um, the plan was just to start some Pitocin and, you know, baby would come right out. Um, they wanted to do a growth scan, though, just to to see how he's doing again, because I had lost so much weight and I hadn't had a growth scan in quite a while, probably like eight weeks or so. Um, and again, because of all the weight loss, they need to make sure a baby's okay. So they did a growth scan 
and he looked great. But I knew that something wasn't right because the technician said, just hold on a minute. I want to show the pictures to the doctor and we'll be right back, which is normal. But they also usually normal say you can wipe off and get get dressed again. And she didn't say that to me. So I knew that he was okay because I saw his heart beating and I saw that his measurements were were normal. But I also knew that something else must be going on. Um, And then lo and behold, the doctor walks back back in. It was Dr. Olga, who you know. Mm, I love her. She's incredible. Um, And she started rescanning certain parts. So then I started getting a little bit nervous, you know, what's going on. Um, And she turned to me and she said, the prediction is the baby is eight pounds, 13 ounces. (laughs) I was no like, worries about growth here. <laughs> no worry. I was like, how is that possible? I lost almost 20 pounds in my pregnancy. So I thought maybe that's why. And then she looked at me and she said, we need to talk about a couple of things. And I was like, okay, this is why. Um, and she explained to me that there were some irregularities on the sano, not with the baby, but with my placenta. So like, again, you, you breathe a little bit easier. It's the placenta. I'm already 38 weeks, so no matter what's going to happen out of this, we're going to be okay. Um, so she showed me on the screen that there was this like large cloudy black area, and she said, this is blood. Um, it's coming out of your placenta. There's partial abruption. We don't know what caused it, but basically when your placenta completely detaches, that the placenta is the nourishment to the baby. So if it's not attached to you, baby's not getting nourishment. Um, and then she said, and look over here. She's like, this is called placenta accreta. It's the opposite of placenta abruption. It's when the placenta digs really deep into your uterus. Um, it invades your uterine tissue. Yeah. Um, and she said, you know, these are both dangerous conditions, but the accreta is what we're really worried about because if you were to deliver vaginally in an uncontrolled situation, there's a, the possibility of bleeding out and dying. Right. Um, and she said, this is actually a really hard condition to clinically diagnose. They don't always see it because at that point in the pregnancy, the baby takes up so much space um, that she said, actually, the placenta abruption, the blood that they saw is what got them looking at the placenta um, and really is what helped them figure out. Like if there wasn't that blood there, they wouldn't have known to look that deeply. And and I want to mention that placenta accreta is something that has a higher rate with each C-section because of the scar tissue. And this is one of the reasons why we try to avoid a C-section among others. It also uh, can cause the need for a total hysterectomy yes. because if it doesn't separate from the uterus and it invades it and um, you know, it can actually go past past the uterus yeah, and invade into. other organs. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we we do worry about that greatly. Either way, it's removed surgically. Right. So vaginally, if it doesn't detach, it can cause tremendous hemorrhage. Go. Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's interesting that I didn't mention with Perry after she was born, I did experience a hemorrhage. So when I when they went back, they actually looked at my medical records from NYU because through my chart, they can access everything. And apparently there was a note about my uterus not contracting properly to deliver the placenta, which caused the hemorrhage. So anyways, she said, we need to have a really hard conversation. And I said, I know exactly what you're going to say to me. You're going to say that a C-section is my best option and the safest option. And I said, and I'm not going to fight you because I didn't go to med school. Um, I'm not a doctor and there's no way that I've just gone through literal hell and back to get on my high horse if I want another V back and I don't want a C-section and then risk bleeding out. And now, now what? My husband's left with three kids <laughs> that I'm not going to be, I just, I said, I don't, I don't, I'm not fighting. That sounds great to me. Um, and, and you trusted her. You had absolutely. And you even said, I think to me where they, she really like gave you a, 
she didn't say you have to. No, she didn't. You must. No. Nope. She she just left it up to you, explained to you yes. the risks and benefits of both. Yes, absolutely. She did not tell me. Um, but that a C-section, in her clinical opinion, would yes. be safer. Which is, I think, like a doctor's role is to give us the clinical opinion and the expert opinion. So she did not say you must have a C-section. She said these are the risks if we VBAC. And the risks were scary, um, including bleeding out, and then, as you mentioned, needing to be immer- like immediately rushed into surgery to have your placenta and possibly uterus surgically removed. Whereas, in a C-section, it's a controlled environment. They go into the surgery with the medication necessary to treat this condition, you know, or to help the uterus contract if it's not doing it on its own, with blood bags already hanging as opposed to needing to rush it up from a blood bank. They're also in there so they can see firsthand exactly, exactly what's, what's going mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. And, and remove the they can remove the placenta manually. Yes. Where they can't do. And I think at this point it's important to note that a vaginal delivery could have had real significant risks in your particular situation. Absolutely. So we, we, we aim for a VBAC when someone when we think that someone's vaginal birth would be successful. Successful, yeah. less complicated, have less complications. Um, and at this point it was really determined that your vaginal birth may have had more complications than a repeat cesarean. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I agreed with them. Um, I was sent to the hospital for a pre-op physical, and I was told to come back the next day at noon for a C-section. They did say if I start bleeding at any point to come back immediately. Um, were you, given your past history of all of the breast surgeries that you had, were, were you anxious about another surgery? I was extremely anxious, especially an abdominal surgery. Because of what I went through um, with my wounds not healing properly and getting sepsis, I was terrified of having it opened again. During sepsis, they cut it open, and then during my revision surgery in January, they cut it open again to revise how it looks. So it's four times being cut open in the same spot. Um, so I was really nervous about it, and that honestly, that was one of the reasons that I really wanted a VBAC, um, because I just didn't want my skin getting messed with again and my tissue um, because of how scary the recovery was from my abdominal surgery. But I also knew that I wanted to be okay and that clinically they had never led me in the wrong direction and that they wouldn't be suggesting this now at 38 weeks when it had never been suggested before unless it was really important. Um, You you didn't have doubts, which I think is so important that you didn't have doubts and they never forced you into anything and they just really monitored you and had your best interest in mind. That's amazing. And probably once again, time passed super slow from yes from one day to the next oh my goodness um my kids were really excited though so Uh, they knew you were gonna have the baby they knew that I was going into the hospital again just because I'd had surgery in the past and my daughter is a little bit my older one is a little bit more prone to worrying and I knew I wouldn't be coming home that night so we did say you know we're going in we're gonna have the baby today my father who's very very close with my kids came to take care of them um and they were super excited about camp zadie and like all the candy that he brought i like they were on cloud nine um i went in and the surgeon came in and explained to me you know even though I'd already had a C-section, they have to tell you everything again. Um, And then they talked about the possibility of a total hysterectomy. And that was a little, like, it was a little scary just because a hysterectomy, like, that means that really your chapter of having children is over. You know, you don't necessarily need your tubes to have children. You don't necessarily need your ovaries to have children if you're, if you've already stored embryos, but you need your uterus. Um, You need it. 
So even people I hear from people who didn't plan on having another baby when they had a hysterectomy, it was just still devastating. It is. It's devastating. And and it's funny because emotionally when I lost my breast, it, it was challenging, but not anywhere near as the thought of losing uh, my uterus. And at the same time, it had been discussed that, you know, again, I have this threat of ovarian cancer and I need to do fertility treatments for kids anyways. Um, so they had mentioned, you know, one risk reducing surgery would have your fallopian tubes removed because that's where ovarian cancer originates. So if you don't have the tubes, it, it's it's a, it's risk reducing. So I had said, you know what, if I end up with a C-section and you're opening me up anyways, then let's remove my tubes um, because then it's one less thing I have to worry about. So that also became a reality of, I definitively would be losing my tubes. Um, and that was hard to swallow. Also, again, not even not even that they're necessary, especially in my position for having children. Um, it's just another body part. It is. And also, you know what, it's, it's, I felt like it was like connected directly to womanhood. And, and as you mentioned before about how the Torah says we don't harm our body, there's like very strict halachos about not doing anything to your reproduction. Yeah. Every, we ask Shilas, obviously, and the mm-hmm, Shilas, mm-hmm, you have to do mm-hmm. this because of Pekuach Nefesh. But yeah, that that was, it was a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, Pekuach Nefesh means, you know, saving a life. Preservation of life. Preservation yeah. of life, exactly. So we, when it's determined that this is a procedure that would preserve life, um, even though it comes with risks, then that's Yeah, what we it, it do. trumps out the other rule that says you can't do this. Exactly, yeah. Um, so we went into the OR, and I have to tell you, it was such a different experience in my first C-section. It was like night and day. It, everyone was so relaxed. Um, and you had actually called the hospital or a friend of yours um, from when you were at Yale, and we were greeted like celebrities with open arms, and they knew our names. And um, one of your friends was in the OR with me, and she held my hand and calmed me down as I put in the spinal, um, and they put on music, and everyone was just so chilled. And I was like, okay, I get it. This is why people do repeat C-sections. In a non-emergency setting, it's a totally different experience. Um, they started the C-section, and they confirmed their fears that there was full placenta accreta. They had to use some different techniques to um, get the placenta to detach and treated it with like medicinally as well as manually. Um, Zev was born. He did weigh eight pounds, 13 ounces. Mm. Um, And then he cried right away. He cried right away. And they brought him to the warmer and cleaned him up a little, did the APGAR. And then they brought him over to me, which was incredible because with Sarah, I did not get to see her before um, she went to the NICU. Whereas with him, they, they did skin to skin immediately in the OR. Um, and I remember just crying and crying and crying and thanking God that he's here and this is my baby and this is the one that I worried about every single day. Um, and it was just, it was truly incredible. So you did skin to skin um, and this time around you didn't have breasts to right. breastfeed and you breastfed your first two, correct? Yes, I did. So that was a totally different experience. Um even though physically I, I look totally put together because I was reconstructed, it, um, I don't have mammary glands or anything like that. So breastfeeding is not an option. Um, so he has been formula fed from the start. And even in the OR, they say that like babies should feed right away, especially bigger babies, so that they can maintain their sugars. So it was just like 
I was like, I don't know how much to feed him. How many ounces does a newborn eat? Um, and I know that you had some anxiety beforehand, right? About how would they treat you? Would I they did. judge you? Yes, because Yale is a baby-friendly hospital. Um, so is NYU, where I delivered my others. And they're very, very pro-breastfeeding. So I was very nervous about, you know, are they going to send in a lactation consultant without even asking me? Because I literally can't lactate. It, it's never going to happen. Um, and, and would just, I be judged? And, right. Yeah. Just that sensitivity of this is this is just yet another hard experience, a reminder of, of what I you went through. Yeah. Um, so I was really, really nervous about that. We spoke about that a bunch of times um, to the point that even before I had Zev, I had mentioned to my provider and she said that they always like in your file, they add notes. Um, and one of the notes was, you know, to be sensitive to this and to make sure that every nurse who comes in contact with me is aware of the situation. Um, thankfully, they were actually really, really well aware of it. And it probably has to do with the proximity to Smilo again. We're under the Yale umbrella. Um, no one said anything other than encouraging and supportive words about it. So we formula fed and he's doing great and he's thriving. Um, and he, again, is another, my third living, breathing miracle baby. He's so beautiful. And um, before we end off, I just wanted to give that little anecdote of what happened post uh, having him with your surgical incision, <laughs> so, an, an adventure we went on together. Yes, we did. Of course, my biggest fear was an infection. Um, so you were really looking out for that very closely, given very, your very history. Closely. Yes. Um, his bris obviously was eight days after he was born. Which was so beautiful. Yes, thank you for being there. Um, two days later, I realized that there was some um, leakage from the incision, and it was warm and red. Um, so I was told to go back to the hospital. So and you were you, well aware of the symptoms of infection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was clearly infected. Um, and you took me because my baby had just had a bris, so couldn't put him in the car seat. And um, my husband stayed home with him, thank God. And when we got to Yale, they said no visitors. And by the way, I don't think I told you this, but there was someone in one of the beds next to me. And her sister was a doctor in a different department in the hospital. And she got kicked out of the ER because they did not allow visitors. Yeah. Yes, well, my husband had emergency surgery last summer at Yale, and um, it was the same thing. Like, the security guard in one department said, I'm sorry, I can't go into the other one. They don't let. Yeah, yeah, they're very strict. Um, so I went, and thank God my surgeon from my C-section was able to come down to the ER and look at the incision and say, definitively, this is very infected. And they determined that the reason it happened is just my skin was so friable from being cut open and sewn back together so many times um, that it didn't heal properly. So I ended up again packing a wound. Um, but thank God it wasn't septic. You weren't. No, it was not no, an advanced infection. Not you at all. Caught it quickly because you knew what because, to look out yes, for. Yes, exactly. Because I knew what to look out for from my past experience. We caught it really early. They put me on antibiotics um, and just kept an eye on it for a little bit and healed perfectly fine. I didn't have to stay in the hospital. Um, and Thank God, that was such a relief. It was so traumatic. It was such a dramatic day. And again, this whole time, I'm thinking, like, do I really need to check off every box of drama? Like, when when is it going to just be boring? I just want boring. But I feel the more you say you want boring, the more I'm like, is like, let's make things exciting. But again, at the end of the day, everything healed normally. Um, and Zev is great. And I feel great. I actually, after that minor setback, I bounced back faster than any other pregnancy that I've had in delivery. Like, even with Perry and my V-back, it still took a couple of weeks to feel normal again. Like, after 
after like the antibiotics started and like kicked in, it was like I was up and walking around. And my my in laws actually made a kiddish for my niece. Um, and everyone was like, why are you up and... You even said at the first, like, why are you up and walking? Yeah. And I'm like, I can't sit down. I've been sitting down for too long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so now, it, yeah, now you, we're great. You were glowing. You look so beautiful <laughs> by that breast. I mean, you Thank still God. do. I'm so happy that you're healed and you're such an inspiration. You talked about topics that are sensitive and not easy for a lot of people to talk about. And I'm sure so many people listening to this, either themselves or their loved ones, have gone through some similar difficulties to you and I hope that they draw strength thank you so much Esther for coming on I'm so happy that you're healed and that (laughs) you're past all of that and it's all behind you and you have beautiful beautiful three healthy beautiful children I hope that you enjoy them and no more drama no more drama thank you (laughs) it's my pleasure thanks for tuning into the happy birthday podcast head over to your wedded academy on instagram to continue the conversation you'll find the link in the episode show notes as well as links to any additional resources products and services mentioned here if you love listening to this show you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it to stay in the loop when new episodes are released make sure to subscribe remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.